Up until this point, we've been talking about an America comprised of colonies run by joint stock companies and lords proprietor, with one exception run by the king himself. But when we think about America on the eve of the Revolutionary War, the picture is very different. It's an image of colonies subordinated to a massive, monolithic empire. And the question becomes how we went from one dynamic to the other. And the answer to that question, like so many others, lies with Oliver Cromwell. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsolvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. I love this era of American history. It's actually the era that got me interested in the subject to begin with. It's overwhelmingly untamed, uncharted, uncertain. A time where unparalleled uniqueness of vision would meet unparalleled intensity of hardship. The notion of a frontier, of course, will continue even up until 1907. But after today, there will be a fundamental and increasingly dramatic change from those earliest years. And for the most part, the change will not come from America, which will continue to be populated by the same sorts of people for the same sorts of reasons as early on, but from America's relationship to England and the nature of England itself. Beyond the elimination of the institution of monarchy and beyond the new acceptance of religious sects, The Civil War in England had produced a vastly different country from the one that preceded it. Very much unlike the England that we've become so intimately familiar with, the version which was beginning to emerge looked a whole lot like a modern state. Perhaps the best example we can use to illustrate this is the military Charles I and his predecessors had relied on a militia. The notion of a standing army was deeply controversial, and even if it had been widely accepted, the king couldn't have afforded one. The navy was the same way, comprised mostly of privateers. But in 1650, England had a standing army of 30,000 people and a standing navy of almost 20,000 and the numbers were increasing. And the government paid for this military with new taxes, which grew to be 11 times higher than those under Charles I, and which were at this point about three times higher. One of those taxes was the excise tax, which had the additional purpose of trying to modify individuals' behavior, which was also a bit of a novelty at the time, at least on the scale that it was now being attempted. In some of these changes, England lagged behind mainland Europe, but in some, it was way ahead of the curve. And the combined effect was a massive centralization of power in London. And with that, England dramatically changed its internal posture from a defensive one to an offensive one, and its colonial focus from exploration and experimentation to expansion, and most of all, profit, 
not just the profit that you might manage to get if you made your colony successful, but profit as in how England itself could get the most out of its colonies. Looking especially at Barbados and areas of India, England started to see that the colonies could make London a center of world trade, bringing in previously unseen amounts of money to both English merchants and the English government. And thinking in these terms, the new English Commonwealth immediately started to treat its colonies differently. Reforms in this vein had certainly been happening, as we've discussed, since the first year of the war, but now that Cromwell and the Rump had emerged with ultimate control of the country, the new government's attitude toward the colonies was quickly stated. You belong to us. Colonies existed specifically for the benefit of the mother country. This was a completely new approach. They weren't companies or county equivalents doing their own thing within the English framework. They were assets of and accountable directly to the English government. It was a very fast, very dramatic redefinition of everything it meant to be a colonist. This was first articulated in the Rump Parliament's response to the colonies, which had declared Charles II to be king, and thus that the Commonwealth was illegitimate. This act was entitled An Act Prohibiting Trade with the Barbados, Virginia, Bermudas, and Antigua. And the title pretty much explains the contents, but there are two really noteworthy details which solidified the government's changing policy. The first was a practical statement of the new government's colonial policy. Whereas they have been and are colonies and plantations which were planted at the cost and settled by the people and authority of this nation, which are and ought to be subordinate to and dependent upon England, and hath ever since the planting thereof, been and ought to be subject to such laws, orders, and regulations as are or shall be made by the Parliament of England, who, in other words, English colonies would and should be governed directly by the English Parliament. They even gave Parliament credit for founding the colonies, something which was decidedly inaccurate. Previously, colonies had been governed by their companies, and those companies had been beholden to the English government, but colonists themselves weren't directly answering to king or parliament, except in Virginia. That semi-autonomy had been the whole foundation of New England's society, and of Baltimore's whole vision for Maryland and threats to these colonies had gone through the company or the lord proprietor. English governance and society in general had been very decentralized, and colonization had followed this pattern. But now England was centralizing, and its colonies would be expected to follow this pattern. If you're an English colony, you are under Parliament, and you answer to Parliament, end of story. 
This, of course, helped with regards to an emerging imperial vision, and it also carried little risk or responsibility, as even the most tenuous of English colonies had stabilized at this point. The second change solidified by the Act was an extension of this, in which the Council of State claimed the authority to control who traded in its colonies. Specifically, the trade with the four main rebel colonies by anyone, including foreign ships, was forbidden and privateering authorized against anyone who tried. On the one hand, this makes reasonable sense. They were putting down a rebellion of sorts. And certainly any embargo of royalist colonies would fail if the colonists could simply turn and trade with the Dutch. But English merchants had been pushing for years for the exclusive right to trade in English colonies. And with the redefinition of English colonies as being colonies created by and for England, enacting something like this was now possible. No colony wanted to lose the Dutch trade, which had consistently been more valuable than the English trade, and which had lifted multiple colonies out of poverty. So starting small, with a group of colonies that needed to be dealt with anyway, was a logical first step. To royalists, news of this act was vindication from the act of regicide. At the next meeting of the assembly, Berkeley made an impassioned speech, giving thanks that God hath separated the Virginians from the guilt and of the crying blood of our pious sovereign of ever-blessed memory, and closing with, Gentlemen, by the grace of God, we will not so tamely part with our king and all these blessings we enjoy under him, and if they oppose us, do but follow me, I will lead you either to victory or lose a life which I cannot more gloriously sacrifice than for loyalty and your security. Now, this act may have been one of the first steps in creating the British Empire, but it was also step one in what you could easily argue was the last phase of the English Civil Wars, which was the new Commonwealth forcing English colonies to submit to its authority. In tiny Newfoundland, the Commonwealth nullified the patent of its royalist proprietor and governor, David Kirk. They imprisoned him pending trial for the accusation that he had interfered with ship owners who frequented the colony, and two years later, still waiting for his trial, he died in prison. His family, and plenty of the original settlers remained in the colony, still heavily royalist, but there was nothing they could actually do for the cause, and Newfoundland's rebellion was officially over. And in Barbados, Willoughby's thinking echoed Berkeley's. Willoughby was absolutely willing to give Barbados's coveted sugar trade to Dutch merchants at war with an English government that he considered wholly illegitimate. He was in charge there now, and like Bell before him, he had positioned himself as a consummate moderate. Using this moderation, he had united most of the island behind him and been recognized as governor. 
He'd even repealed the acts which targeted the colony's roundheads, but he would not submit to an England without its rightful king. And he would trade with the Dutch without hesitation. And in response to his defiance, England prepared a naval fleet. Not only was Barbadian sugar fabulously valuable, which prompted London merchants to petition the rump for a military expedition to enforce the trade ban, but in addition, some of the colony's roundheads were now in England, petitioning the government to push royalists out by armed force and replace Willoughby with Edward Winslow. At least one Barbadian roundhead actually spoke in Willoughby's favor, citing his reversal of of anti-roundhead policies, but such people were in the minority, and England started preparing its naval expedition. And to illustrate just how much English merchants had invested in this argument, they asked for and received permission to send merchant ships with the Navy's fleet so that they could trade their goods for sugar as soon as the island submitted. So, England sent a manifesto declaring Barbados rebels and traitors to the Commonwealth. And then they sent a fleet led by Colonel George Icekew, a loyal parliamentarian who had served under the Earl of Warwick and whose greatest achievement thus far had been preventing his fleet's defection to the Royalists during a naval revolt during the Second Civil War. And as they crossed the Atlantic, Willoughby heard of their pending arrival. He also heard about Charles II's presence in Scotland, with that country largely unified behind him, and he heard that Prince Rupert was in the West Indies. So he did the calculations, chose perhaps the most optimistic result, and decided that Barbados should fight. He went to the assembly, and they agreed, and together they published a declaration stating their intent to fight rather than submit to the Commonwealth. It is absolutely amazing how much this declaration sounds like the Declaration of Independence. Shall we, it asks, be bound to the government and lordship of a parliament in which we have no representatives? In truth, this would be a slavery far exceeding all that the English nation hath yet suffered. I mean, it was groundbreaking. No other colony took this approach, and the document has been repeatedly used and cited since by colonial legislatures opposing imperial interference. And the next day, they started preparing to fight. Everyone who refused would be stripped of their land and sent away. A militia of 6,000 foot and 400 horse was raised, and a levy of 50,000 pounds of sugar and 20,000 pounds of tobacco was imposed to pay it. The export duty which had been granted to Willoughby was also used for this, Forts were prepared, and every ship nearby was required to contribute one to two pieces of ordnance to the fight. And they were intensely strict about all of this. Divided sympathies would doom the colony. And like we've discussed, Barbados was at this point full of people who had lost 
everything to Parliament, and who had no sympathy for anyone who had any sympathy for the Commonwealth. The Dutch helped, sending daily ships trading drought provisions, arms, and ammunition in exchange for sugar, and Willoughby ordered that trade only be conducted with them. It was frenzied, and it was extreme, but Willoughby promised the moderates that if good terms were offered, he would be willing to accept them. But more than anything, he held out hope for Charles II in Scotland. And then they waited. Ice Q had stopped on the way to subdue royalists in the Scilly Isles, and then he had spent some time searching for Prince Rupert without success. And then he headed for Barbados, and at dusk on October 15th, 1651, Barbadians stationed on Carlisle Bay saw a fleet of English ships in the distance. Icekew ordered his troops to stay where they were for the night so that they might seize any Dutch vessels which approached the next morning. And the next morning they did just that, capturing a small group of Dutch ships, but only after it was emptied of cargo. And then they sailed into the bay. Barbadians fired their artillery, but did virtually no damage. Willoughby distributed his army along the coast to stop a landing, and they fought hard. It became clear that Barbados was well enough defended that Icecue couldn't successfully invade, so he sat back and blockaded it. He sent Willoughby a formal demand to surrender Barbados to the Parliament of England, and Willoughby replied that he acknowledged no supreme authority over Englishmen but the king's. And by his commission, and for him I do, and by God's assistance, shall defend this place. And just as an illustration of how strongly Willoughby felt about all of this, he wrote this to his wife, who had asked him to surrender for his own safety. No, I will not do it. And therefore, dear heart, let me entreat thee to leave off thy persuasions to submit to them who so unjustly, so wickedly have ruined thee and me and mine. If ever they get this island, it will cost them more than it's worth before they have it. So, blockade or not, Willoughby was obviously not going to work with Ice Cube. So Ice Cube circulated pamphlets to the other colonists, pushing them to turn against him. And he increased colonists' tensions with a series of raids, small, destructive, unpredictable, and occasionally bloody attacks. So there were no ships in or out, there were raids, alarms, and just a constant state of uncertainty. But Barbados was still unwavering in its allegiance to both king and governor. And meanwhile, Icecue's own troops were suffering. Enough of them were dying from scurvy that he could barely man the ships, but he was meticulous about maintaining the illusion of strength. And then came news that Charles II had lost at Worcester and the royalist cause was doomed. 
and Ice Cube passed this information on to the colonists, too. But Willoughby was still unwavering. I have never served the king in expectation so much of his prosperous condition as in the consideration of my duty. And if it have pleased God to add this sad affliction to his former, I will not be a means of increasing it by delivering this place to your keeping. So the blockade, raids, and pamphlets continued for two more months. Ice Cube's men got a couple of disturbingly effective raids in, though, even at Barbadian strongholds, and this shook the colonists. And in December, when reinforcements stopped on their way to Virginia to subdue the royalists there, the apparent doubling of Ice Cube's fleet shook them even more. Barbadians didn't know that this fleet had been severely weakened by illness, too. Moderates started to push Willoughby to negotiate. Willoughby still had no desire to do this, but he reluctantly agreed. So reluctantly, in fact, that Ice Cube didn't believe that his offer was genuine. So Ice Cube planned an attack to push even harder for negotiations. He gathered 400 people, some from each fleet, some Barbadians who had defected, and even 150 Scottish prisoners who he was able to pay to fight... And they launched an overwhelmingly successful raid on Barbados, killing 100 people and taking 60 prisoners while losing only eight. His success meant that the Barbadian army would now have to be continually mobilized, even when the fleet bound for Virginia left. At this point, Barbados was tense enough that Ice Cube could play on the divisions. He reached out to Modiford with immensely favorable terms and negotiated with him instead of Willoughby. Modiford liked the terms, and his faction started to demand surrender. They reminded Willoughby of his promise to surrender if terms were favorable enough, and the assembly went to work preparing for negotiations. These negotiations went nowhere, though, because at the end of the day, Willoughby's faction, which included so many victims of transportation and sequestration, did not want to submit without being allowed to declare their allegiance to monarchical government. And that's one thing that Ice Cube was not going to allow. This failure of negotiations did finalize the split of the moderates, though. And at this point they decided to take over the island and accept Ice Cube's terms. They wavered a little bit, but Ice Cube encouraged them to do this, reminding them of the supplies that they'd be able to get and of the island's past struggles. They declared their resolution, and Ice Cube once again tried to get Willoughby to back down. But once again, Willoughby refused. Neither the treachery of one nor the supineness of others had weakened his or his followers to the point of accepting a dishonorable peace. So Modiford and Ice Cube met with an army of 2,000 men and 100 horse, and they started marching. The two armies were just about equally matched at this point, and Willoughby's soldiers started to desert. 
this was going to be big. And this was going to be bloody. And this was going to be destructive. And he was going to lose. And after retreating for two miles, he surrendered. They met at a place called the Mermaid Tavern at Austin's Bay and agreed to terms. In these negotiations, Barbados gave Iskew its fortifications and agreed to accept Parliament's choice of commissioners and governors, as well as its control of the militia. And they agreed to give back Barbadian Roundhead's estates. In exchange, though, they got their own sequestered estates back, whether they were in England, Scotland, or Ireland, as well as the promise that they would not be punished for their rebellion, and they got their right to free trade with any country which was at peace with England. These terms were extremely generous, so generous, in fact, that Iskew worried that the rump parliament wouldn't ratify them, but he had to make the concessions that would solidify peace fast before Modiford's group decided that he was all talk and rejoined Willoughby. He was particularly worried about the free trade issue, knowing that the English government was contemplating making all colonies trade exclusively with the English. But he explained the issue away, to Parliament at least, by saying that he only meant that they would be given the fullest extent of free trade allowed by English law. The articles were ratified, though. Willoughby was forced to return to England, not to return to Barbados without parliamentary permission, and Iskew took over the governorship. He reviewed everything about the way that the island ran and ensured that everyone in any position of authority was reliably loyal to the Commonwealth. He publicly proclaimed things like the Act Against Kingship and then banished a group of cavaliers for a year, violating his own peace terms, and repealed all acts passed during Willoughby's time in office. And with this, he appointed a new governor and left, stopping by Suriname, where Willoughby had started a small colony of people who had been pushed out of Barbados to ensure that that one was in submission too. And then he checked on the rest of the West Indies. He didn't even have to go to Antigua, because the small colony had written a letter indicating their surrender when Barbados fell. Willoughby hadn't been wrong that Prince Rupert was coming with a fleet of ships. In fact, he had wanted to come earlier, but after fighting in Ireland and Portugal and the Mediterranean, incurring debt to keep the fight going, his fleet wasn't in great shape, and his captains had opposed the idea of crossing the Atlantic. Instead, he had been doing some privateering around the English gold mines in Africa, but now he arrived. Just too late. The French welcomed him, and there were pockets of English sympathy, but colonial leadership was uniformly hostile. There were people on St. Kitts willing to trade with him, but an Englishman who had sailed with him was executed by the local authorities. His fleet did what they could to help the Dutch war effort against the English, but they were devastated by a hurricane, and one of the many casualties was Prince Rupert's brother Maurice, 
who went down with his ship, the Defiance. And then disease started to spread. Things were going downhill fast, and Rupert himself was seriously ill. Nothing good would come of staying, so he sailed back to England and docked in France. He came ashore and promptly collapsed from disease and exhaustion. It was weeks before he could even stand again, and he never fully recovered. He stayed at Charles II's court in exile for a while, until the two had an argument about the debt that I'd mentioned. Disgusted, Rupert left for Germany to live in obscurity. And especially after the fall of Barbados, there was virtually nothing that the intensely rural, totally unfortified Virginia could do. Cromwell appointed a small group including William Claiborne and Richard Bennett as commissioners to reduce it and Maryland to submission to the Commonwealth, backed up by that fleet which had helped in Barbados. When Berkeley heard about this, he started planning for the colony's defense, gathering about 11,000 Englishmen at Jamestown, while a local tribe promised an additional 500 warriors. But the message from other colonists was clear. You know we can't win this. You know we can't survive without trading our tobacco. And you know we really can't do any good for the king anyway. Barbados might have had a little more leeway because of the intense wealth and value of sugar, but Virginia always hung by a thread. If Virginia had to endure even a fraction of what Barbados had, it would crush them. The leading voices in this argument were certainly sympathetic to Parliament. Regicide Edmund Ludlow claimed that his relative George was their leader. But they had a point. Virginia and Bermuda couldn't stand alone against the weight of the government that had defeated every force which had ever opposed it. And honestly... Though it was true that they couldn't do much for the king, it was also true that England couldn't do much to enforce its demands in Virginia after submission. Berkeley couldn't argue against this, and Virginia, too, surrendered. Those who refused to take an oath to the Commonwealth weren't punished, and the Commonwealth agreed to allow them to pray for the king and speak well of him privately for one year without punishment. Like Barbados, Virginia was given freedom from any taxation that its own assembly hadn't agreed to. Though, of course, this assembly would be filled with people loyal to the Commonwealth, while Berkeley and his leading supporters would be sent to England like Willoughby. And that was the general tone. Anything that the Commonwealth couldn't enforce anyway, the English commissioners granted as a concession. Officially, they demanded submission, but realistically, it wasn't worth the fight. With Berkeley gone, Virginia couldn't cause much trouble, and as long as they didn't cause trouble, Parliament didn't care. Bennett took over the governorship, with Claiborne Secretary of State, 
and the new council included Captain John West, Samuel Matthews, Nathaniel Littleton, and Argall Yardley, among others. They do what they needed to to keep Virginia in line-ish. When Virginians put forth an actual cavalier as the head of the House of Burgesses, the man wasn't able to take his position under the threat that his private business would be made public. In other words, he'd be held accountable for the laws that he had broken in opposing the Commonwealth. So that showed how things would be. If Virginians stayed quiet, they'd be left alone, and if they tried to change things, they'd be singled out and held accountable for the laws that they were breaking. And at this point, Virginia essentially disappears from the historical record. There's virtually no information about what happened there for the next eight years. Pretty much the only things that survive are the acts and orders of the General Assembly. They passed a lot of laws in the Puritan vein, and ordinary Virginians kept doing the same things that they had always done, regardless of these laws. They read from the prayer book, even after it was illegal, and they followed what Anglican pastors they had, even if those pastors were preaching illegally. Laws were virtually impossible to enforce in Virginia, and Bennett's government knew this. And in England, Parliament had purged the Summers Island Company of members who were opposed to the Commonwealth so its remaining members pushed Bermuda into submission. They also allowed the Eleutheran adventurers to return to Bermuda from the Bahamas and pushed Governor Forster to punish the people who had revolted after the regicide. Or tried. Forster evaded their questions, feigned ignorance, and downplayed both the revolt and the previous governor's participation in it. He protected his predecessor and the rebels from the consequences demanded by the company on Parliament's behalf. And to his credit, he ensured that Bermudians lived peacefully, thanks to his leadership. As for Maryland, we are just going to have to discuss that in the next episode. But with the colonies essentially submitted to the Commonwealth, the Rump Parliament took another step toward becoming an empire. Merchants and trade were making great strides, observed the Venetian resident, as government and trade are ruled by the same persons. If the merchants wanted exclusive trade in the colonies, they were going to get it, and a group of merchants, including Maurice Thompson, William Penwear, Benjamin Worsley and even James Drax, along with Oliver St. John, drafted the Navigation Act of 1651, declaring that all colonies must trade only with English ships and that they are and ought to be subordinate to such laws, orders, and regulations as are or shall be made by Parliament. And the rump passed it. If they'd done this before, the colonies would have united and fought much harder than they did. Free trade was an explicit demand from Barbadians in exchange for submission, and they in particular now felt that this had been granted in bad faith. 
which it had. When they protested, England blew them off. So even their Commonwealth loyal governor ignored the law and they kept trading with the Dutch. Virginians were going to ignore the law anyway, and they did, as did Bermuda, and, one can imagine, other colonies too. But this set of events, more than perhaps any other that we've discussed, laid the foundation for the British Empire. And even if colonies could temporarily ignore the laws, American history would be forever changed. 